Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. All right, here we are. Three, two, welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. And we are joined today by very special guests, David and Chelsea, from the Based on a True Crime podcast. David and Chelsea, thanks for joining us, and tell folks a little bit about yourselves and your show. Thank you guys so much for having us on. So our show is a true crime podcast with a little bit of a twist to it. Uh, true crime is my passion, and David's passion is horror movies, so we talk about Movies that are based on true crimes, and we talk about you know just straight up crime dramas, but also a lot of horror movies that are based on true stories. So you know, we've done Amityville Horror, we've done David's personal favorite, which is A Nightmare on Elm Street, <laughs> and yeah, we just we have a lot of a lot of fun with it, and we've been around since uh, the end of May, so still still pretty young, but kind of kind of hitting our groove now, so. Well, I, I've listened to the show and enjoyed it quite a bit. I know Ron made a guest appearance on the Leopold and Loeb Scream show uh, not uh, too long ago. Yes, that's actually been our most downloaded episode. It was Leopold and Loeb and the movie Murder by Numbers. That was uh, Murder uh, by Numbers, yes. The yeah. Sandra Bullock, I forgot. Yes, Sandra Bullock, yes. Uh, oh, my. Well, man, that sounds awesome. Well, I'm a bit of a true crime nut myself, so I'm, I'm with you there. And we've, we've had other true crime aficionados on the podcast last year. Ron and I had uh, both Justin and Aaron on at different times from the Generation Y podcast, if you guys know them. And so. Oh, uh, I know them, of course. Yeah, very, very cool. <laughs> cool very chill guys and so we had we got to do a couple of cool films with them and we're really excited to uh, have you guys on to do do a a fun one so today we're, we're gathered to review john carpenter's in the mouth of madness starring sam neill julie carmen jürgen prochnow bernie casey and charlton heston directed of course by john carpenter but not written by him i didn't know that until recently but released in 1995 on an eight million dollar budget grossed 8.9 million at the box office now let me just set the stage here. 1995, I'm a senior in high school, and I'm a John Carpenter nut. David, you said how, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street's your favorite horror series. Halloween's mine. And so uh, I, you know, I've, I've seen everything Carpenter's done. You know, And at, going to see a Carpenter flick in a theater, I was down. I was like, I don't care what it's about, whatever. I went to this. Uh, I'll never forget the girl I was dating at the time. When we walked out of the theater, she said, what in the hell was that? And that kind of summed up our whole relationship and, and really the, the film. And I remember going like, but, but I think there was something there. And I've rewatched this like so many different times. So I've seen this movie a lot. Um, which isn't an uh, odd thing here on film strip. Usually I'm the one that's seen it a ton of times, but I want to get y'all's background, uh, on it as well. So Ron, start with you. Any background on this film at all? Did you see it when it came out or when did you first check it out? Uh, I did not see it when it first came out um, in 1995. I was, I think, a freshman in high school. Uh, not to make Jay feel old, but Jay is very old. I've watched it randomly at my old job uh, after they'd given us the notice that we were all uh, going from full-time to part-time employees and then they were going to get rid of our department. 
I decided I was just going to spend my days watching Netflix until I found a new job. And one of the movies I watched on Netflix was In the Mouth of Madness, just <laughs> sitting in my cubicle at my old workplace. That's a great way to spend a day at work. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, and it was great because, you know, there's no nudity or anything in it, so I didn't have to worry about the IT department getting on me. No, no. Not that I cared. Just Sam Neill losing his mind a few times. Uh, but, uh, all right, David, Chelsea, what about you two? Uh, yeah, I, I saw it when it came out in the theaters, too. I saw it opening night. Uh, always big-time John Carpenter fan. This I remember watching some of the behind-the-scenes on, like, Entertainment Tonight or something, and, you know, they were they were really playing up the movie. And, uh, yeah, seeing it, seeing it that night was great. And then, uh, yeah, check it out on, you know, uh, VHS over the years. And finally, when the Blu-ray came out, I was pretty excited. You're not going to tell them how uh, – you're not going to tell them how old you were when you watched it in theaters? Uh, no, I, I, I graduated high school though. <laughs> All right. Well, I did not see it in theaters. I was actually eight years old when it came out. So I, I missed that one, but we watched it actually, you know, when I started dating David, he's a big movie buff and I've always been more of a television watcher myself. But uh, we were sharing some of our favorite things. So I made him watch the first five seasons of Supernatural. And he made me watch all of the John Carpenter films. And this one really stood out to me. I can tell you, I don't know if it's a spoiler alert for our discussion later, but it's actually my favorite. I'm also a huge Sam Neill fan because Jurassic Park is another one of my favorite movies. So I just I loved it from the first time. And we've watched it a handful more times since then. And we just watched it last night. That's a refresher. Oh yeah, and I, I watched it last night as well. Um, and in fact, I I got up early this morning for reasons I don't quite understand. At like four thirty, I just woke you know, up and I was like, you know what, I need to watch that again. So I put that on. I don't recommend doing that right after sleep. It it will mess with you <laughs> a little bit. It makes the morning uh, staff meeting go a little strange. Uh, but uh, <laughs> especially on a day like that. But yeah, I I've seen this one a ton of times too, David. I I I um. I will tell you, I think it's probably the last really good thing Carpenter did, though I'm the kind of guy that will try and defend all of his stuff, even the bad stuff. Uh, but I do think it's it's probably the most appealing thing he's done. And this is a movie that, while it didn't make bank at the box office, has built a following through the years. And before we started the call, you had your video up, and I asked you, is that a, a Sutter Kane button you have on? So you obviously have really bought into this movie in a big way. Yeah, I'd have to give credit to uh, Chelsea for <laughs> coming up with the button. Uh, we were doing an art show, and she's like, hey, you should really do a, you know, do you read Sutter Kane? And so I was like, ah, we'll try it. And immediately within like five minutes, somebody came by uh, my art table and, and bought a button. So there are a lot of fans out there. I, I do think so, and I think that this is a great way to kick off 2018 for us here on Filmstrip and getting into this. And I think before we go any further, it's time to do the old plot summary. So, Ron, I'm going to ask you to, if you can in your best uh, ninja way, uh, serve up the plot for us here so we can get into the movie. Oh, this this plot summary isn't going to be two pages long like it was for Ninja 3 The Domination. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) John Trent is a freelance insurance investigator who can spot a scam from a mile away. However, things go haywire in his latest investigation for a publishing house when their prized author, horror book megastar Sutter Kane, goes missing before turning in the final manuscript for his latest book, which is nearing release date. Trent thinks this is all a publicity stunt, and along with Kane's editor, Linda Stiles, heads off to find the fictional town of Hobbs End 
which Trent thinks is a real place off the beaten path and part of the stunt. The two eventually stumble onto the place, only to find it exactly as written in Kane's books. After a whole lot of weird encounters and even seeing Kane himself in the doors of a Byzantine church, Trent learns from Styles that this was a stunt, only it didn't go as planned and everything they are seeing and hearing is real and part of Kane's new unpublished book, which she, which she has read parts of. Now bear with me here. Trent is actually a character in the new book, which is part of the plan of the old ones, immortal demon creatures seeking a way back into our reality to take over, using the book to drive the populace insane, thus opening the door for their return. Even when Trent eventually makes it back to where we started the film, he learns the book has been published for some time and a movie is coming out soon. A movie he's been living in because his character has been turned into reality as part of the demonic takeover. The movie ends with Trent watching the events of the film in an abandoned movie theater while outside few humans remain and the demons have seemingly taken over our realm as credits roll. That is a tight plot summary, my man. And I got to tell you, we just moved over a lot of things. There's a lot to unpack in this film. And I guess the best way to do it, it's hard to do this one because the story weaves in and out so much, but I, I'm always struck and I'm always forget it too, that the movie actually starts in the insane asylum where they're bringing John Trent in and where we'll pick up with him at the last five minutes of the movie. I always forget that the movie starts there or whatever. And I mean, we get some good, you know, moments there. He kicks that one guard right in the, you know, the, the legs and in between the legs there. And that, there's all that craziness. And then they bring in David Warner, who I guess didn't have anything to do on Star Trek that week and decided to come over and do another movie. And, or maybe he wasn't ready for Scream 2 at that point, but he's there to be the, the psychiatrist with John Glover, who I know from a lot of things, but mostly from being uh, Lex Luthor's dad on uh, Smallville. I don't know if you guys ever watched that, uh, but I yes, I did. Yeah, I hung in there for all ten seasons. So, oh. <laughs> so I, yeah. I did not do that. Yeah, I, well, it was one of those like it was a vendetta, and I had to finish it. Uh, so, <laughs> so I, I, I did that. But anyway, but going back, we have all these little you know parts here, but you get Trent. And then you see just like craziness go down. And I, I'm really struck by how they immediately want to throw you in, particularly Carpenter. And we should talk about the writer here, Michael DeLuca, who went on to become like an Academy Award nominated producer and things like that. He didn't write a ton of things, but he wrote this and they throw us right into like the insanity of this story because the thing that strikes me so much about it is once you've seen it and you kind of know the twist is you, ha if you're watching it again, you have to remember, wait a minute, John Trent's not real. He's been invented by the book, but he isn't a reality now. Like it's so twisted. Yeah. I love that. I, my favorite part about this movie is that so much of it maybe doesn't really make sense. <laughs> I just, I love how ambitious it is. And I love that, you know, I think that, um, how much of him is real is it's almost like your own personal interpretation. So did he exist, but his life kind of got swept up in this novel? Did he not exist? Does no one exist? And then when you really think about it, well, he's an invention for the movie anyway. And then at the end of it, he's watching the movie that we watched it just to me, it works on so many levels, kind of by not trying to explain everything. Um, you know, to me, I feel like 
this movie and kind of like Prince of Darkness are the two to me that kind of feel like two of a kind. You know, and I love that they're not super straightforward and, you know, they really make you think and work for it. Well, that is uh, two of three uh, of Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, along with The Thing, which we've previously discussed. Um, I I really enjoy that we've got a super unreliable narrator it, it, to the point that we're not even sure whether or not he exists uh, and is real or fictional. And I, I also really enjoy that um, – well, as far as I can tell, this is the closest we're ever going to get to like – proper hp lovecraft in a movie yeah uh, so i, I don't I know i'm a big that. reanimator fan <laughs> yeah i think reanimator too but like i want guillermo del toro's at the mountains of madness and that's never going to happen that's been happening for 10 years now uh so i'm thinking this is the closest we're going to get to like some actual legitimate old ones on screen and i don't count uh dagon as uh, proper adaptation. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I think that John Trent's character is fascinating. Um, you know, there's a certain point in the movie where I believe it's when he goes back to um, he he goes to see Charlton Heston um, and to kind of uh, fill him in on the assignment. And when you for, you learn that like he's saying like you delivered the manuscript months ago. That's like just such a great scene that it really threw my mind for a loop. And every time I watch it. I kind of have a different interpretation of like looking back on everything that's happened before in the film. Um, yeah, it's just like, it's just fascinating. Um, it does definitely, I like your point about the unreliable narrator and feeling that very like Lovecraftian vibe um, in that regards, because he's continuously like astounded and unbelieving of the events that are happening around him. He's like super suspicious until, you know, spoiler alert at the very end. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to remember of another film or, or television show where we find out that the narrator is actually the creation of, of something else and when he becomes aware that he's a creation and tries to fight back against that. Because the whole Trent character is set up to be he he was a nobody. Like he you know, I'm I'm my own man, I don't work for anybody else, I'm freelance, you know, even turns down that job offer from Bernie Casey after he busts the sweaty guy that was screwing around with his wife and burned a warehouse down or whatever in the opening scene when we meet him. And but but you what you know is that there's nothing about him, like his apartment is stark, there's never any lights on. We never see him really do anything that's like normal human stuff. So he is just a a, a figment of imagination. Uh, but he doesn't know it. And it's like when he becomes aware of that, he fights back against it. So therefore his memory lapses, which is why he would never remember delivering the manuscript like he was told to do and all this stuff. I mean, it really, you really mess with your head when you start thinking about it. And that's the one thing I, I, I'm Chelsea, I'm with you on this. I love about this movie. And I think it's so ambitious is because you don't know at any one time it, it was what I'm watching, what really was going on, or was it just the book working itself out as it sort of crosses back and forth. I mean, it's a really trippy thing. Yeah. I like, um, so speaking of movies where the character is actually a creation of a writer, a uh, stranger than fiction is a great, great movie. That's, it could not be more different than this movie, but, um, I loved it. And I, I do love John Trench. John Trent's character I think his transformation kind of from the beginning where he, he's presented he almost seems like a character out of like a noir film oh, yeah. um the kind of like 
chain smoking gumshoe. And it, you know, he does feel like a literary creation. I think he fits so well into that. And I also love the idea with the movie of kind of trying to think. So they present the idea that all of this is happening because enough people have read his books and believed in it. And he says, um, Sutter Kane says that his books sold more copies than the Bible. So it's kind of like a, like a tulpa where it's our collective belief is making all of this happen. Um, yeah, we're but I've kind of gone back by, and forth by yeah. buying into the characters and seeing all of it happen. It even has that whole thing where he's he's on the bus ride and he's telling me that at the end. And I mean, they you know they obviously Senator Kane's a little bit of a lift on Stephen King. I mean, they made no bones about that, and they they even go through the bother to have Julie Carmen go oh, forget Stephen King, he buries him or whatever. And I'm sure Stephen King somewhere is like, well, time to go crank out fifty five thousand more words about something, you know? So I guess that's just how he <laughs> operates. But but I think in a kick that they at least acknowledge that, right? And then you've got. You you know, I mean, Charlton Heston in his later years, this was his job was just to come in and add legitimacy to the most ridiculous stuff you could possibly think of. And I, I like him in his small role as the editor. And he's probably there for like a day. You know, they shot once in the day and once once in the evening and that was it. But he adds so much legitimacy to all of it because he's not a fan. He's just a businessman and he's just trying to get stuff done. But he doesn't have the real stomach for this stuff. But he's also a big reason it's so popular popular because he's built this whole um, publishing company really around this guy. That's well, a great it's... point about his, sorry, Go ahead. Uh, about his legitimacy because yeah, seeing him in a movie, you know, uh, in the mid nineties, it, it, it added a, an air of gravity to the, to the film. And I'm sure John Carpenter must've been thrilled to, you know, just get him for the day or however long he was on set. Uh, well, I think it's funny that uh, uh, Chelsea and Jay both mentioned kind of, like the film noir gumshoe type of character. Cause uh, also I'm glad Chelsea uh, remembered, remember the name of stranger than fiction. Cause I was sitting over here racking my brain, trying to remember the name of that Will Ferrell movie. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. But uh, John Trent reminds me a lot of, there was a character in the forties and fifties on a radio show called yours truly Johnny dollar. And Johnny dollar was a, a freelance investigator who worked insurance fraud cases. And I guarantee you that John Carpenter grew up listening to that show. And that's where he got some of this inspiration for John Trent, because it's basically the same. It, it's essentially that character just with, you know, more cursing and, and a lot more sm uh, smoking that we can see. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was blown away from it. So I was like, how old is this movie again? When could you light up that many times in a movie and it be played off just as like normal behavior? And stuff like you just don't see that anymore. You see it, but it's not as I don't know. It's not as noticeable. Like I, I noticed. I was like, man, this guy's like every five seconds or whatever. The other thing too that I love about this, and I don't know if they, it's just because he can't do one. I've never heard him try. But I'm glad they didn't ask Sam Neill to do like some bad Midwestern accent or something. They just let him be himself, which also lends to the credence that he could only be something that was created. You know, because we know nothing about him other than the little bits of information he tells about himself. And I think the fact that they let him keep his natural accent and everything just works in the role. Yeah, we did notice he seemed to kind of slip in and out. He was definitely not full New Zealand accent at all times. But anytime he was on the cell phone, he had a, a serious New Zealand accent. Or not a cell phone. This is 1995. <laughs> <laughs> it was on an actual phone, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the cell phones in 1995 would be the other thing that gave you cancer. Uh, 
as you held it to your face. <laughs> if they had been in this film, I'm surprised they weren't. But uh, we we didn't get any of that in this movie. But I'm really surprised there wasn't at least one scene of him talking into a car phone. Right, because they have him in that huge Cadillac the whole time, you know, driving around with the uh, Linda Styles, which Julie Carmen. Okay, did, does anybody know her from anything else? I read her like uh, you know IMDb page and stuff, and apparently she's like a therapist and things now, which is awesome, good for you. But like, I don't know that I've ever seen her in anything else. She looks like a cross between Jennifer Beals and I, I don't know, uh, somebody else from that eighties era that was trying to do something serious, but she's so melodramatic and strange. Yeah. So speaking of strange, she has a lead in fright night part two, which is pretty amazing. Um, she's sort of the, the lead vampire, um, that takes Jerry Dandridge's place in that film. I knew I'd seen the face. Thank you. I've only seen fright night two, like once. (laughs) But I, I remember that. I mostly remember the like bowling with nuns scene in that movie. But I, oh, but yeah. yeah, I I didn't realize that was her. Oh, that totally makes sense. Yeah, uh, we recently watched it. I have like this kind of crazy four disc deluxe German Blu-ray of it. So <laughs> it's it's wow. top of mind with me right now. <laughs> okay, so I you've seen her in something else. Either Ron, Chelsea, you ever seen her in anything else? I'm just Friday night too. I watched it with David, so cheating. Uh, absolutely nothing. Not even. I don't even really remember her in Fright Night too. I just remember the bowling. <laughs> I mean, how can you forget that scene? It's classic. So, <laughs> oh, it is classic. Yeah, yeah, in, indeed. So, but I mean, really though, she she has this presence to her that I can't quite put my finger on, you know, but. The the funny thing is is how they just drop her out of the movie two thirds of the way through it, and they have some throwaway line later like, oh yeah, they just wrote her out, and I was like, did they or did she like get mad leave? What I mean, it is a strange thing that she plays this role of like, I don't know what she's you know she's supposed to be his editor and she gets really hooked into this stuff, but when she gets to the church and they find the the town and all this stuff, she gets kind of hypnotized, almost vampire like by Sutter Kane. And then she just goes away. She's like a weird combination of the uh, femme fatale and also the girl in trouble. Uh, So she plays both sides of that coin. Yeah, I kind of got like first Bond girl out of her, like the one that dies usually. That's kind of where I was going with her. Yeah, without the uh, ridiculous pun of a name. Well, well, yeah. I mean, the ridiculous name is usually the one that lives. So so it's the the normal one that dies. But yeah, you're on the right place. Yeah, I, I liked her. I thought she kind of provided a good foil for uh, Sam Neill's character because I feel like right when they got to Hobbs End, actually even before, well, while they were driving to Hobbs End, you know, she's the one that kind of started to get the feeling that like something is not right. Something strange is going on. And he kind of almost until it was too late still thought it was like a ploy, like a, a publicity stunt. But, you know, she got there and she recognized, um, you know, the woman at the inn from the story, the Hobbs and Horror. Um, So I I did think that she kind of served a role and then disappeared when she stopped serving that role anymore, which, you know, kind of sounds right to me if she really is just part of, um, you know, Sutter Kane's story. 
And see, yeah, that's the thing I forget too. She's also just an invention of the story because in that second meeting with Charlton Heston later, he's going, yeah, I don't know who that is. I just sent you off by yourself. And I was like, aha. So she's just a character too. That's when he does that whole, oh yeah, they wrote her out. You know, so he's, that's still him coming to grips with the fact that, wait a minute, I was just a character in a book and now I'm a real boy. When they're getting to Hobbs in, though, is when it gets creepy because he drives around and is bored and, you know, wakes her up and she beats the crap out of him with some corn chips, which I thought was hilarious. And then uh-huh. he, you know, he's, he's just, you know, driving around. And then finally he goes to sleep and she's riding around and all the weird stuff happens. You have that kid on the bike, right? That comes back is like the so old, creepy. He's like the old woman on the bike all of a sudden. It's like, he's like the, yeah. I was like looking at the witch woman from Pumpkinhead or something for a second. <laughs> That's very creepy. Yeah, that scene is is uh, I don't know. I feel like it's sort of a misdirect because because it's like you see the the child and then all of a sudden he's yeah an an old person and you know that that feeling of you know sometimes uh, I think we've all taken road trips and have been driving late at night and you're tired and you start to see things and it's it's it definitely I I've uh, been driving before and have commented that it felt like a, an in the mouth of madness esque uh, <laughs> drive along the highway. Oh yeah, the first time I went to where my wife is from, which is much further than where I grew up in in the state I'm in, it, I had never been there before. And where they live is really off the beaten path and stuff. And the first time I was driving out there, I in my mind I was like, I'm going to drive over some wood planks and some clouds, and I'm going to hit a kid on a bicycle here pretty soon. <laughs> That's what I felt like <laughs> I was going to see. I was driving into the mouth of madness. Thankfully not, but but I mean, really, that, you know, that is a real. Uh, tone shift though because up to this point this has been kind of a eh, just your standard noir thriller i mean you've even had him do the thing that i, I remember in basic instinct where michael douglas is reading some of sharon stone's books and he calls his partner like hey cowboy found it on page 58 or whatever and i even thought that was from this movie for a minute he starts reading kane's books and having weird dreams and then he figures out wait a minute if i cut all the covers up they're the state of new hampshire you know, which is, I'm like, well, that's, that's a neat twist, but it's been just a fool. But when we get to this point where they're coming on the town and really when they come across that bridge, it, everything just gets immediately weirder and surreal. Yeah, I love it. I love the, um, I don't know if it would be, is the trope like a fish out of water or like just the creepy town trope, um, where you know, it, it kind of feels like everyone's in on it except for the character that you're following. So I feel like they were, maybe they all didn't quite know that they were in on it, but they were in on something. I mean, I feel like the whole town was definitely a creation of Sutter Kane. I think you know, right off the bat, you have those creepy children um, chasing the dog and the way everyone's kind of getting progressively more mutated. It's just it's. Um, I'm, I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> as much as there's Lovecraft hanging around in this film, this is where the Stephen King part kicks in for me. This is like Needful Things and It, you know, Dairy and all that kind of mixing together there where you have the town that knows stuff, but they just kind of turn the other way and they don't. And then they're also you know secretly mutants or something like that. I mean, that, that this part feels very Stephen King to me. It, it uh, kind of made me think of... Um the wicker man the original version of the wicker man very good i love not, that not movie the, not the nicholas cage karate kick one to the face oh man well, that not one the comes, bees that, not the bees well that happens later when he starts going full-on cage crazy yeah <laughs> but no you're i didn't think about, that's a great one the original wicker man yeah 
I was thinking, what's my favorite fish out of water one? The one that you showed me, David. With the town on the beach. Oh, um, Dead and Buried. Yes, I love oh, that movie. I love that movie. Yeah, all the, that all, great. yeah, no, we're all hitting on it. And I mean, I, that's the thing about this movie that I, I just am amazed by. Most of the time when you get a movie that borrows from so many different things, at some point it starts feeling really mm, derivative and kind of, eh, I've seen that, right? But the way they place it all together here and the, the way it's really kind of out of sequence and out of focus and there's just weirdness around every turn, you never know what's coming next. It's a real attribution to like Carpenter and the way DeLuca wrote this and DeLuca is also the producer on this film or executive producer so like he was there helping him put this together on the set and the way they pull that off keeps this interesting and even though the fact that they're just reintroducing things that we know from several other you know places and then you also see the influence this movie had I mean you know I I think about films like Scream and and you know all they're like and what you know came after them and that Kevin Williamson style horror that sort of ruled the late nineties and early two thousands. And so much of that really owes its presence to films like this and like new nightmare and stuff like that. The thing I like about it is that, yeah, it does, it does pick and choose from a lot of different sources, but you, you very rarely get the same weird thing twice. Yeah. It's always something – there's always something slightly different. I mean it starts out weird enough with the cop beating the guy in the alley or the uh, do you read Sutter Kane guy with the axe. Um, it, it, you, you know something weird is going to happen, but you're never quite sure what kind of form that weirdness is going to take. And that's a, that's a really kind of a credit to the way they put the movie together. It, it kind of harkens back to the uh, – the map made of the shredded Sutter Kane covers in the beginning. It's a, it's a bunch of pieces that fit together to make a, an unlikely whole picture. David, let me ask you, see if you can help me places the fellow horror movie aficionado. What's the, the whole bleeding out of the eyes and crazed look thing from, I, I know I've seen that in other places, but I couldn't place it. Yeah, no, that's a great question because I feel like too I've seen it in other things and I can't think of anything specific. Um, you know, I think like the mo- the more modern um well, the one thing that did come to mind was uh George Romero's original The Crazies, but I don't I don't really think they have like that eye eyes bleeding sort of thing. Um they have the curiest eyes for sure. What a great uh, like visual though to show these fans in their distressed moments, right? To like they look disheveled, they're kind of washed out, but their eyes are like these bright blue eyes, and they're they're all bleeding out of it. And I didn't pick up on it until this time, but Sutter Kane in one of the last scenes says, "Hey, you don't think this is real?" And I ever tell you my favorite color was blue? And he snaps his fingers, wakes up, and everything's blue. And I was like, wait a minute, all the people when they go like loony and start chopping people up, they all have these bright blue eyes. And it just hit me this time. I was like, ah, oh, that's a neat twist. But I couldn't tell what that was from. But it's such a great like zombied out look. I mean, like I, I know I've seen movies like where people get like really sick, like Outbreak and stuff like that. And they always try to like sink the eyes in and all that exists. It's just a way to show like not well. But uh, that, this is a great scene early too where we find out that was his agent basically that rolls up on uh, John Trent and uh, the – nameless Bernie Casey guy. I think he calls him Robbie or something like that from the insurance company at the restaurant. And is, you know, he swings an ax at him. <laughs> like, do you read Senator Kane? Well, you're going to, ah, you know, what a great way to show a freak out. 
Uh, I think there's some bleeding us in, in Lucio Fulci's uh, City of the Living Dead, but I'm not under. I know there's at least one scene with somebody bleeding from the eyes in that, but I, I can't remember if they're full on crazy. But I think, I do think there is something like that in the crazies. I think David is right. To me, I kind of felt like the bleeding eyes maybe had some kind of like religious significance, especially you know with all the action taking place in a church and him talking about his books selling more copies than the Bible. You know, I think that sometimes when you think of these kinds of, um, you know, religious things that happen sometimes, I think one that you actually see is, you know, statues that bleed from their eyes. So that's kind of what I took from it. But I think that, you know, they leave it very open to uh, people's personal interpretations. I think too is it's, if you're reading something that is having an effect on you, what's a way to physically manifest that on somebody? You start bleeding out of your eyes. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it's poisoning your eyes, basically. So, which, I mean, it, that's funny because that's what they told you about television all your life, right? Yeah. You know, and, I think I read about that in the hot zone, too. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, really, though, that's, and I, I like that whole twist of it, though. And the thing about the town and the people and the children and the church and, and Hobbs in that really gets me is the, the visuals are so good. That church looks amazing. And I don't know if that's just matte painting or if they found that place or what, but you, if you saw any of the background stuff, maybe one of you can tell me because I've never really watched any of the special feature stuff on it. But the sets and the way this all goes down, so much of this happens in the daytime. And when you can make horror scary in the daytime, you've really got something special. Yeah, the church is real. It's in uh, Toronto. We were actually just looking on the map last night. It's about a seven-hour drive from Cincinnati. So we may take a, a weekend trip up to, to look at some of the <laughs> filming locations. Very cool. uh, yeah, that's a real thing. Oh, very cool. Yes, it's called the Cathedral of the Transfiguration in Markham, Ontario, Canada. That's the exterior of the black church. Oh, wow. Well, it's, it's a great setting, and whoever found it, and then the way they shot it and Everything is great, but I love that that whole scene with that. I think that's the guy that was uh, Vigo from uh, Ghostbusters Two. <laughs> was was one of the townspeople, if I'm not mistaken. And he's going, yeah, yeah, and he's going after his son in the church. And you see the little boy in the door, and the doors are flapping back and forth. And then all of a sudden, there's Jurgen Proch now with like his fro blowing in the wind with lightning going behind him. And I'm like. This just looks nuts, but the way he just stands there and just owns it, this, this guy is what makes it for me because you got to get this casting right. And they get a guy that maybe he's not what you necessarily expect, right? Because if, you, if you've ever seen Stephen King, he's not really what you expect, you know? But this guy looks like he could be the leader of a cult. Yeah, definitely. That was... Um, now on our third or fourth time watching it last night, I feel like that scene really stuck out to me because it feels like there's a story going on that you don't know about. So they see the church and they go to the church, but when they get there, there's like a mob of people. A man is demanding what I assume is his son back, Johnny. And then you see a kid and the kid disappears and Sutter Kane's there. And then suddenly there's a bunch of like Dobermans chasing people. And it just feels like you're really just thrown into something and they never really explain it. Yeah. Can you I, know, I don't, they never say who Johnny is. It's, 
Uh, it's just so bizarre, but I love it. We later know he bites part of his dad's face off before his dad shoots himself. But th- the thing that got me about this scene is you have like the posse with all the guns, right? And not one of them gets a shot off against the eight Dobermans that come after them. I'm like, you have weapons. Don't know what to do with them, obviously. But I just I found that that's to good. Be I don't funny. support killing dogs in horror movies. Well, I, I didn't know that <laughs> I needed that either. But uh, but if they're devil dogs, maybe they deserve it. I don't know. But the funny thing was like you had these, you know, they've wrote, they've you know taken up arms against the great evil, and they're completely powerless to do so. And I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. And then I reminded myself, wait a minute, this is they're all the product of a book. Like they're they're supposed to be ineffectual. That's the idea. They don't even know what they are anymore. They just know that they're there. And the you know the uh, Cain took over the church and let go of some big evil, and it started taking over the town piece by piece. And now it's all his. And this is all where it's going to come down. And I, I think Styles says that later is that this book is about the end, and it all starts in this little town and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, man, this is this is just getting trippier by the moment. But the the fact that they don't fire on the Dobermans, I just I, I found humor in that. I was like, oh, that's yeah, they're so scary, you can't even pull the trigger. You can't shoot evil, Jay. <laughs> Oh, you could try. <laughs> I, and speaking of John Carpenter, Donald Pleasant shoots evil quite a bit. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it just doesn't point. do any good. So. But we we keep on with the, the group here. And that's when Trent confronts Linda with the, this is all just a big, you know, ruse. And she admits that, yeah, we did try to pull a stunt, but this is not what we had in mind. And I had a question, since we know she's a character and this is all unreliable, how much of this are we supposed to believe at all? Or is this all just the part of the book? I don't know. I change my mind every time I watch it. I think that's, you know, another thing that I I really like about it is I feel like, you know, we watched it last night. I guess I was wondering in my head if maybe, you know, things kind of went down more straightforward at one point and John Trent went and got the manuscript and delivered it and the book became published but it wasn't until everyone started reading it that he started kind of living out this nightmare because that's what was written in the book and it took people reading it and believing it to kind of make it happen but i i really i changed my mind like every 15 minutes well, that, that's a great point you brought up because i will tell you where i think he starts living out people reading it in the book is when he finally gets back out of the town and he bumps into Hayden Christensen and trying to sell him a paper in the middle of the day and he wants to know where the highway is. I think from that moment on, he's now living out the book that people are reading. But up until that, it's all, it's just been happening in real time. Like I, I look at that as a point of like, this is when he really starts losing it and not remembering where he is or what he's doing because everything happened so choppy from then on everything up to this point it has been kind of linear you could follow it i just have to say i forgot that that was baby hayden christians <laughs> i looked at the face i was like man that kid looks familiar and i looked it up i was like holy cow it's little anakin but okay it's only his second best role i mean the other one being shattered glass so anyway about <laughs> so you if you haven't seen that movie by the way i'll be a little plug for shattered Glass. it's a good movie it's not not great but it's a good and he's good in it but anyway Based on a true story, by the way, too. So, oh, uh, and a crime. So, uh, journalism fraud. But anyway, uh, another story for another day. But okay, Ron, but you you weigh. What do you, what do you think? I mean, am I crazy, or is that the point when things turn? Uh, it seems to me like that's a. I mean, if you're going to project that any of this happens in reality, that's a great point for it to turn. 
because after being exposed to the uh, the the shugoths and the nameless horrors that he's seen, and watching Jurgen Prochnow rip his face apart like a paperback book, uh, that's that that'd be a pretty good place to break from uh, the real world of fiction. But to me, it feels like a plot device that you would read in a pulp horror book because it's like yeah we planned this thing but this it's it's gotten way out of control i just i mean he was only supposed to go away for a couple of weeks and now he's running a death cult with attack dogs (laughs) you know it it feels like a very pulp horror turn for the for a story to take but you know i i go back and forth on it every time i watch it too and today, uh, I watched it today, and I'm thinking, okay, this is all part of the the book, and it's just kind of a you know, a, a Dean Koontz type thing. Yeah, I yeah, I think I think there there are a lot of moments where I kind of doubt myself if, uh, in terms of yeah where where it happens, but you know, I think that that there there is some real possibility there that you know once he escapes that's where things kind of diverge and um you know it makes you kind of question everything that did, did happen in uh Hobbs end um in terms of just all of the horrors and it's just everything is so weird and outside the norm uh and i guess it's that's you know really where all the stuff with linda kind of happens too because it's they're they're on this trip together um, and then suddenly he finds himself alone. So you know, like there's, I think there's a possibility there. I mean, yeah, and the you know, the all the weird things that happen to him. And, and I want to go back for a second, though, Ron. You brought up a great point. Is once he gives him the manuscript, Kane gives him the manuscript. He turns around and says, ah, "This is where I end." And when he tears himself apart, he basically becomes the portal for the old ones coming back. And I thought, what a great visual. I mean, and for 1995 effects, that still holds up pretty well too. It looks it looks good. Yeah, it looks great. Uh, I uh, watched it on uh, DVD today on my HD TV, like upconverted and all that stuff. And it looks phenomenal. Like it's there's just enough of a of a weird ripple in uh, in Sutter Kane's face to to give it that look of uh, paper tearing but not to the point of it looking like a bad special effects. And, and, and you know, that's what, that's what happens when you get uh can be involved in your movie. Uh, this is true. They, they do they know what they're doing. The only, the only other like point of reference I have for somebody being paper, being torn apart. And David, forgive me for this is one of the nightmare on Elm street films where super Freddy comes around on a skateboard. I, is that five or six? I can't remember. Oh uh, yeah, that was six. Uh, Freddy's dead. Oh there, my gosh, yeah. There we go. You know what? Funny thing though, Michael DeLuca wrote Freddy's Dead, so maybe he's just borrowing from himself. Uh, yeah, yeah, possibly. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'd never put that together until I did. You said that I was like, wait a minute, he did write that though. I knew that. So anyway, wow. So, uh, but I, you know, I remember that. But I was like, it's such a, it's such a neat thing. And I mean, I think the first time I ever like thought about any of that was the young Sherlock Holmes movie that came out in the eighties. And the guy that the, the, uh, the old, uh, knight made out of glass or whatever that gets in a sword fight. It's real trippy. 
you know, and now, that like, is real trippy. Yeah. Yeah. And so I kind of had the same story. This is some of that real trippy imagery, but when we throw Trent back onto the road and, and Anakin Skywalker tells him where to go before he can't sell him a paper, he, he goes to this little hotel or whatever and he gets a package and it's the manuscript and he's like, who gave you this? You know, nobody knows. And he just spends the whole night burning it or whatever to no avail, as we'll find out later, because Apparently he left and went straight back to the publisher and delivered this. And now all of this other stuff is just, it's like his false memories of it. It's him trying to fight against what he is written as, right? It's just him trying to, I'm a real person. No, you're really not. You're just a character. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, I know one thing that kind of stood out to me more this past time of watching it was kind of his conversations with, um, David Warner's character, whatever his name is, um, kind of in the hospital, both in the beginning and at the end. Yeah. And, um, you know, I feel like that's almost our only window into what's happening outside of the mental hospital because we, you know, you see a little bit of it when the place gets torn apart and he's actually able to leave and go to the movie theater. But, um, one thing that I noticed this time was when he was going in before he started the conversation, um, you know, the doctor was like, is he one of them? And then David Warner's character said something like, like, that's what I'm going to try to find out. So, you know, it, it kind of makes you think about what's happening to people outside yeah. Um, as, like as reality what they're is doing, flipping yeah. over. And, and we find out how Trent got in that ho- mental hospital as he shows up outside of a bookstore where they're, you know, they're talking about Sutter Kane and how you know the craze is happening and all this infections going on and people still demanding the book. And he, some kid walks out of the store bleeding out of his eyes and he's, you know, he says, well, if you read Sutter Kane, you know, what's coming next. And he pulls that ax out of his trench coat and thwacks him with it. And I was like, I didn't, I did not see that company. And that's how he ended up in the insane asylum. And we talk about what he does in the insane asylum. He's like taking a black crayon and drawing crosses all over himself and all over the like walls and everything. He's like, this will protect me or something. I think he's doing it to pretend to be crazy so that they don't let him out. Didn't, wasn't that kind of, I feel like that was kind of implied in the conversation. Um, you know, which I don't blame him. He knows what's out there. Yeah, they all have a they. And I bet you want to know who my they is. Uh, you know, when he's like the they, the them, the paranoid schizophrenic or whatever. So that's a uh, that's actually a really uh, good catch uh, on your part, Chelsea. I, I've never thought of it that way. I just thought he'd gone straight crazy. Yeah, me, me too. That's a an excellent pickup because I I thought he was just flipping out, but you're right. It's that it, it all brings us back to that conversation he's having with David Warner, and uh, you know he he goes out and I love what he says to Glover. He's like, uh, I I think I can help him. I'll be back, but we never see either of them again. And I guess we're to presume that. I don't know, the monsters get in and take them out. Like, we don't really know what happens here at the end. All the the loonies get out, but, you know, Trent's left alone. Yeah, he's left alone. And there's something, you know, uh, when watching it this last time, I was, there's a there's a quote that um, John Glover's character says to um, David Warner, to Dr. Wren, where he's like, it must be pretty bad if they've called you in. And I know, like, on the surface, it's like, he must be some sort of, maybe he's an investigator, or maybe he has like a, He's involved with like the 
police or something, but I almost feel like is there some sort of mysterious group or something? The X Files. Is it an occult sort of thing? I don't know. Could have been. I, you know, I'm a Buffy fan, so I'm like, is he part of the Watchers Council? He gets called in. I don't know. You know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. could, could be could be all of those things. I think I think any of that's right. But I, I do like that. Again, they just go away though. You know, and um, and even though that all all the hallucination and everything he sees when Trent gets out of there, he hears that radio announcer talking about how the world's overrun with monstrous creatures, and even the radio announcer's like, "Who am I even talking to? Who's left out there?" And I and I had a flashback to an '80s movie that's a guilty pleasure of mine. It's called Night of the Comet. Have any of y'all ever seen that? Yes, oh, I love, I love it. It's funny because uh, as I was watching this with Holly, I said this kind of feels like Night of the the ending part where he leaves the asylum and it's all desolate and empty. I said to her, "This feels like Night of the Comet, except you replace two teenage girls with one Sam Neill." <laughs> <laughs> exactly, no Catherine Mary Stewart uh, in this one, but uh, Night of the Comet. That, well, since everybody's seen that one, go ahead and mark that down for a return trip to Never Never Land here, because I own that on VHS. <laughs> so, um, and I yes, I still have a working VCR. So anyway, we do too. Yes. So, <laughs> great i'm not the only one <laughs> uh, but I, I love how when we get outside reality and fantasy have flipped and i love how they start revealing things to us and this is how you know that trent's a character in the book right is he sees a poster of in the mouth of madness and it's his face it's like he's the star of the book and they even like the movie even says in the mouth of madness with john trent and i'm like is he supposed to be like an actor because he's on the poster as well it's really funny how they play all that off I, what was all of that that's awesome too because yeah uh even the poster says directed by john carpenter and it's just so meta yeah i love it and you know i i'm just gonna keep harping on this it just doesn't make any sense and it's perfect it's perfect that it doesn't make sense it's perfect that they don't explain it and i think that it it really drives home that this is not the real world or this is the real world that has been twisted. Someone is controlling all of this. And I think, you know, that's relevant to when the, you know, hospital is attacked and everyone's gone and there's blood and giant claw marks everywhere. You know, why is John Trent okay? Why was he not also killed? Well, because he's a character in the story now, you know, and maybe always. Um, so I, I love that ending. I thought it was just absolutely perfect yeah it is the twist when the unreliable narrator actually becomes the reliable thing left in the film <laughs> one of the things i think if you were able to get michael deluca to talk about this movie is that he has an idea of whether or not like this is like uh you know ridley scott and blade runner he has some kind of definitive answer to this question, to these questions that we're asking. We're just not going to hear it. Uh, now, John Carpenter, uh, he he will pro he will probably just say something like he does when people ask him about the ending of the thing when he kind of growls, "Who gives a shit?" <laughs> uh, that's probably the answer you get out of uh, JC about that one. But I get I guarantee you they both of them, probably Sam Neill. I think everybody who was involved has a has a way that they think this movie works out, whether or not the tr Trent is real, Trent is fictional, if it's all in a book, if it's real life, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
and I guarantee you no two people involved in this would agree. No, I, I think you're right, and I think that's what makes this movie stand up and hold up as long as it has, and it's how it's built a following through the years, which probably also pisses John Carpenter off because he says he hates it when people tell him they love the thing. He's like, where were you in 1981 So when I needed huh. you? But anyway, uh, I think he softened on that in the latter years. But, yeah, it's the same same point. Well, guys, I think we're at the uh, part of the podcast where it's time to give – where it's time to give final thoughts and popcorn ratings. So let's start with David and Chelsea first. What are your final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings for In the Mouth of Madness? Yeah, I uh, I love In the Mouth of Madness. I would suggest if any of you fans who love John Carpenter's movies but maybe skipped it over because it was one of his 90s films, give it a second watch, uh, give it a chance, or first watch, give it a chance. Um, it is so much fun. I think it gets this interesting combination of Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft uh, together, and it stars Sam Neill, who is awesome in it. I'm going to give it an extra large popcorn. I don't, I don't think that this should be a surprise. It's, you know, I, we've watched, I think almost every John Carpenter film, we did not watch the memoirs of an invisible man yet. Um, but I think we've watched every other one together. This has been my absolute favorite. I will fight anyone on that. <laughs> and I am giving it an extra large popcorn with extra butter and also that like ranch sprinkle topping <laughs> they have in some theaters and also free popcorn refills. Nice. All right, Ron, what about you? Uh, I'm going to go with a large popcorn. Uh, I really enjoyed the movie a lot. It's not my favorite John Carpenter, but uh, it's it's definitely probably top three for me, and I'm a big John Carpenter fan. Uh, top three to top five, depending on how I'm feeling about uh, the middle sections of Escape from New York or uh, <laughs> on a given day. But yeah, definitely a large popcorn. It's really trippy, and it's it's kind of a it's one of Sam Neill's best performances. It's right up there with um, uh, Possession, the the movie he did in 1981 with Isabella Johnny, where he's just full blown crazy at all times. Um, it's 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 uh, it's a little more restrained than that. But when he starts bugging his eyes out and and lighting his cigarettes manically. It, it's just great stuff. And, you know, I love, uh, I love to see Jurgen Prock now in movies and, um, yeah, I really dig it. I, I dig this one too. I'll tell you now it is in my top three. I would put this at a firm three for my Carpenter, you know, films and things like that. And I think it's a strong one and one that I'm glad you said it, David, if people have skipped it or maybe have forgotten about this one, you deserve to, you need to go back to it because it deserves another, another uh, look because there's so much stuff going on in here that you've seen other shows and films do for the last 22 years, you know, and they got it from what this one was able to, to do. And, and this one got it from what films had done for the past 40 years and, and, and literature had done and things, but they put it together in a way that just was so different for the times. And I think that's probably why this movie in 1995 just didn't work. I think every, everybody was going with sort of ultra realistic and this was so surreal. People just didn't get it. And, in the fact that it's found a life afterward totally, I think, backs that up. So I think this is an incredibly strong. It's a really, it's got good performances on it. Sam Neill totally carries it. Julie Carmen, who I know from nothing else as we've established, but uh, was in Fright Night too. By far her best thing that she ever did. Uh, maybe next to the therapy work she's done. I don't know. 
But I, everybody in this serves a purpose, and it's so much fun to watch and rewatch and just sit and think about. It. And you can really twist your head around this one and have have some good uh, discussions about when when was this and when was that. And I think that's what makes this film last. So I'm going to go extra large on it as well. I think it's worthy of the moniker and a, and a strong film, and it's certainly a strong way to start. 2018 here on film strip david chelsea thank you again so much for being on the show we've really enjoyed it tell folks what you've got coming up on based on a true crime oh man we don't plan that far ahead on our show <laughs> um <laughs> no we've got a few up our sleeves but we always make our our listeners guess but i can say i don't think it's gonna be a surprise but our christmas episode which is gonna you know, be out obviously before this episode, but we're doing Black Christmas. So we're really excited to be talking about that. So, hey, by the time this is out for you guys, everyone listening should go back and check out our Christmas episode because it should be good after we record it in like two weeks. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I did check out your, and I will say this because I listened to your Silent Night and Deadly Night tie-in winter episode too, and I got a real kick out of that because I have a, a, an affinity for that film and particularly the second one because how can you not love Garbage Day? I mean, come on. <laughs> so, I mean, there's not a time when that doesn't come around, right? I don't say in my head, garbage day. You know, I mean, it just, it just works on so many levels. So, uh, but yeah, thanks again so much for being on the show, gang. We really enjoyed it. Tell folks how they can find your podcast and your site. Uh, sure. Yeah. You can just search for based on a true crime uh, podcast. We're on Instagram. And the only one that's a little different is Twitter, where we're at true crime based. But other than that, you can find us uh, on all the typical streaming platforms and podcatchers and all that good stuff. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for having us on the show. Yeah. And our website is based on a true crime dot com and David is actually a very talented artist and his work can be found at Lab Creature Art Studio or um just at Lab Creature on Instagram. Very cool. Again, thanks again and we'd love to have you back on again sometime in the future. Maybe maybe we'll get to that Fright Night retrospective one day, Ron. So but, uh, I mean there's some Colin Farrell in our future. But who knows what's gonna come up? I mean, twenty eighteen is gonna be a a year of interesting exploration for us here on Film Strip. I mean we've already planned out doing some you know, we're gonna continue our Cubert retrospective, so that's coming up. And Ron's been pushing for a long time for something special in February that I'm just gonna tease and leave leave you hanging for folks but he's wanted it since he came on this show and i think we're finally going to get around to it this year and i mean and i've got three of the four movies locked down for it fantastic so we're, we're going to have a little fun with that one and of course you know there's as all kinds of things nick and i are going to be exploring crime films throughout the, the decades and uh, picking up here and there on some of those and uh, who knows what else we'll come up with you know film strip we we act like we plan a lot of stuff in advance but a lot of times it's like hey man did you see that you want to talk about that yeah let's do that and that's usually how it goes down here but again folks thank you for your support of course you can always on our website continue to play podcast.com slash movies we're on itunes stitcher google play leave us a review let us know what you think of the show we appreciate your support until next time for david and chelsea from based on a true crime and ron i'm Jay, thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.